with the Green Finance Institute and you're listening to Financing Nature from GFI Hive. This week I'm joined by Professor Mark Reed, Professor of Rural Entrepreneurship at Scotland's Rural College to talk about the role of carbon codes and standards in developing a pipeline of investable nature projects as well as place-based models and their role. So right at the beginning of the journey with this, uh, the people in code stuff, uh, people said, right, you need to employ a bunch of uh, economists. Uh, we need to do uh, willingness to willingness to pay surveys to work out if there is, in fact, a market for this. And I was like, yeah, we could do that. But in reality, we could just create a market and see how much people are willing to actually pay in a real marketplace and, uh, and solve the problems as they arise, uh, and collect the evidence as the evidence gaps arise and make this thing happen in practice and study it and learn from our mistakes. Uh, and for me then, uh, yeah, you can still do rigorous, robust research um, in this environmental governance space, which is what I specialize in. And at the same time, you get those impacts and that is research that, that matters. Very warm welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week. We are going to do a deep dive into UK environmental markets this week with Professor Mark Reed. And um, Mark worked on the Peatland Carbon Code and is now involved in several other carbon codes under development in the UK, as well as being, my words, not his, a real thought leader in the UK on the role of standards and governance as we develop these high integrity environmental markets. So a lot of really in the weeds discussion, what makes markets work. Um, And without further ado, let's invite Mark on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. It's such a pleasure to see you. How are you doing this sunny-ish day? I'm good. It's fantastic to be on the podcast. Thank you, Helen. And we're so happy to have you. You're the preeminent voice in the UK on governance within the development of environmental markets, among many other things. Um, And I know that I could probably spend this entire podcast just introducing you and the work that you've been working on and you're currently undertaking as you wear so many hats. But for those who haven't had the pleasure of knowing you or listening to you speak before, I wondered if you'd just be able to share um, share with us some of your background. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a professor of rural entrepreneurship at Scotland's Rural College, where I co-direct the Thriving Natural Capital Challenge Centre with Dr. Hannah Rodman. Uh, I'm also a research lead for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's UK Peatland Programme. It's a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> uh, where I sit <laughs> on the executive board of the Peatland Code um, and various other things. But I guess those are probably the, the two most relevant hats for today's interview. Brilliant. And just out of interest, what does the, I'm going to get the words mixed up, the Thriving Natural Capital Centre, um, what, what's its aim? What is it working on? Uh, so the goal is to try and uh, use ecosystem markets, and that's broadly not just carbon markets, ecosystem markets, uh, to try and tackle the twin crises of climate change and biodiversity loss, uh, and to do so in an evidence-based way, building robust ecosystem markets that can deliver uh, for the climate, for biodiversity, but also for local communities. So I wanted to talk to you first about codes and standards. 
you know, in, in the UK, we have, uh, for those listening who don't know, we have two current codes in operation that support the growth of credit markets. We've got the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Carbon Code, the latter of which, as you say, you are one of the original architects of. Um, and we have many other codes in development, hedgerow, salt marsh, wilder carbon, agroforestry, agricultural soil carbon. I'm sure I'm missing a few. And several, several of these you are also involved in. Um, and they're voluntary carbon markets. But I just wondered if you could sort of talk to us about why that is so important for the UK in particular. Yeah, so these are <coughs> domestic voluntary carbon markets uh, that we're talking about. Uh, and we're talking here about carbon markets, uh, but of course there are voluntary uh, as well as compliance uh, biodiversity markets. There are markets uh, for water quality, flood risk alleviation, the lists, uh, list goes on. But the key thing is that to create a market, you need market confidence. And one of the key ways in which you can create market confidence is through the creation of codes that provide assurances to project developers, um, uh, whether that's a farmer, a landowner, someone doing aquaculture. How do I know as a landowner that, uh, that I am actually going to get the money that I've been promised, uh, that there's not going to be some sudden clawback if I don't quite reach the targets I I was expecting to through no fault of my own. And as an investor, how do I know that I'm investing in projects that are genuinely additional, that would not have happened without my investment, that these uh, changes in soil carbon, uh, carbon in biomass and trees or whatever it might be, are permanent. Uh, they're not going to get reversed or they're not going to be displaced and leak into other parts of, say, a farm's operations, uh, for example. So they, they are actual real things that I'm actually getting for my money. Uh, and these codes are designed to provide just those assurances to create the kind of confidence you need to create markets. And we've got a bit mad on codes, haven't we, in the UK? Have you seen something similar elsewhere? We had um, Louisa uh, Kiley on recently from Australia, and, and she was talking about several methods, as they call them there, for carbon that feel a little akin to our codes. But I just wondered, is this is this happening elsewhere? Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, my colleagues and I have uh, just uh, had a paper accepted where we have reviewed uh, all of the codes operating internationally for soil carbon, including the uh, Australian schemes. And so uh, you have uh, a lot of these are, are national uh, in scope, uh, like the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code in the UK. Uh, and then there are uh, organizations um, uh, such as um, uh, Gold Standard, there we go, and Vera, that's what I was looking for, uh, <laughs> who have methodologies that can be, be applied in any country. So they could apply in the UK, but equally they could apply in, uh, in Australia. So talk us through what goes into a code. Essentially, there are two elements of a, a code, uh, certainly a carbon code. Uh, you've got the measurement, reporting and verification, MRV, as I'll call it. Uh, that uh, that actually guarantees that what you actually get in terms of carbon sequestration or avoided emissions is real. And then in, in addition to that, you've got uh, all of the governance components of this that ensures additionality, uh, permanence, um, uh, leakage, uh, all of those kinds of issues. Um, so that's what you have. Uh, and we're seeing this uh, happening across the world. Uh, and so we are like other countries in the uh, in our race to try and create uh, robust, high integrity markets uh, for each of the different habitats and land uses that we have. 
So in the UK, for example, there's huge interest, as in many countries, in agricultural soil carbon. Uh, and as we see a proliferation of different schemes uh, emerging in countries like the UK, uh, the question then arises, well, uh, how do we ensure that those schemes are actually delivering real benefits, that they're not exposing either investors or, in this case, farmers to risks? Uh, and so, therefore, let's uh, try and create a code. Uh, I'm involved with teams developing various codes for different land uses and habitats for carbon in particular. Uh, and there is a process you can go through. There are exemplars. Um, uh, there is good practice. Um, I've been writing a guide on how to write carbon codes at the moment. So there are things that you can do. The problem that you've got, however, is uh, that, that, that you can't stipulate that there is a single code. And what you are seeing in many countries, including the UK, is a proliferation of codes for uh, the same habitat and the same ecosystem mm -hmm. service. And so now how do I know which of these is high integrity? Which code should I use? And so there is this need for a wider governance framework or policy framework. Yes, and you've spoken often about this need um, for establishing the right governance frameworks to support these markets, but also to ensure that they emerge with high integrity. So tell us more about the solutions being discussed around governance. Uh, so a lot of people talk to me about this and, and they say, well, the answer to this is the, the, that we need to have um, a set of high level principles. And I think, yes, let's do that. And there's work going on. But when you look at that work, there's a whole load of stuff that's happening on the demand side to uh, regulate what claims companies can make once they've invested in this stuff. Um, so we've got the Voluntary Carbon Markets Initiative, their uh, code of practice on claims, a task force on nature-related disclosures, climate-related disclosures. You've got the UK Green Taxonomy. You've got some Scottish government principles on responsible investment, uh, but much less on the supply side. Uh, so the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets has come up with some core carbon principles. I think there's more work that needs to be done uh, on that and on other ecosystem markets. Uh, and there's maybe some work to be done just to kind of pull these principles together. So if we're developing a carbon code in the UK, what are the core principles we would expect from projects? Uh, so, for example, we would expect them to demonstrate additionality. And I think there is a role for that so that we've got something which is standardised and we know what to expect. But that's at a level of uh, of abstraction, though, that doesn't necessarily weed out uh, some of the weaker codes. That, so the second place people go to is they say, well, uh, we need um, accreditation, uh, we need uh, regulation. So uh, UCAS, the UK Accreditation Service, there are other uh, similar organisations, and we've got that. Uh, and that solves the problem to an extent, but I would argue not to the extent that we need. Uh, so we could say, uh, if you want a code to be integrated in, into something like the UK Environmental Reporting Guidelines, if you want to be signposted, then you have to uh, have your code checked by uh, by UCAS, uh, and that uh, it creates a certain level of certainty. However, they are not going to comment to the level of depth you would want on whether you've got the right sampling depth in your soil or whether you're using an appropriate model to uh, assess the likely carbon gains over the lifetime of your project. It's just not the kind of thing that they uh, that they look at. 
um, financial uh, conduct authority. Great, maybe that solves the problem. Well, yeah, uh, where there are abuses, where there is fraudulent activity going on, uh, then that can bring some further certainty, some further assurance into these markets. Uh, but what if those uh, problems don't emerge until you get to your first, first verification point and you're five years in and it turns out that there are a bunch of codes that have actually taken huge amounts of money that five years down the line, it turns out they're not actually delivering what they said they were going to do. And mm. I would argue something better than that. And so the final solution is people say, well, it's simple. We just need the uh, UK soil carbon code. We need the peatland code, the uh, woodland carbon code. <laughs> and, and great, uh, problem solved. Well, yeah, but you can't actually prevent competition in these marketplaces. Uh, and I don't want to to, to, to to say that there should not be some competition. In fact, I think this kind of competition for codes is really positive. Uh, in the last executive board of the peatland code, uh, in response to this, we've revisited the question of quantifying biodiversity. Yeah, so competition can actually drive up standards within codes, I would argue. And so if you then accept that competition is inevitable, we can't prevent it, it might even be a good thing, then finally the question is, right, well, actually, how do you maintain uh, a level of, of, of appropriate standards and integrity uh, within these codes? Well, now we need a, a set of minimum standards. But there is one final part, which is that, great, we've got some minimum standards, perhaps, but you then need to make sure that you stay on top of the evidence. So we need groups, expert groups, that can look at the evidence, update these on a regular basis. Uh, you need to be able to horizon scan the problems. Uh, and these are new emerging markets. We need those expert groups. But we need to think, uh, I think, at that higher level about how we aggregate some of these governance mechanisms to make sure that this actually works across land uses and ecosystem services in the real world. I'm thrilled to hear that you're developing um, like a guide to how to create codes. That sounds absolutely super useful. Um, incredibly sensible to have this sort of minimum set of standards across the board put together by someone like the British Standards Institute. Um, a, a couple of things. One is, um, you know, it costs money to create a code. And if I'm not mistaken, the Woodland Carbon Code and potentially the Peatland Carbon Code, but you'll tell me if I'm wrong, are subsidised by government. Um, and then many of the other codes are getting going due to the National Environment Investment Readiness Fund. Um, so, as much as we'd love competition, it's an expensive business dealing in codes. So how, how might that play in? Or, or should we expect government to, to fund the codes? Yeah, I don't think we should uh, or that we can, because if you do, then effectively government is now um, competing in a competitive marketplace with privately funded codes, uh, and that is the reality. So uh, the, the soil carbon space is an interesting one in which to to, to look at this. Um, so we started off a project uh, funded by the Environment Agency to create the soil carbon code. And then we instantly got a lot of feedback from existing market players saying we have uh, our own uh, MRV, our own governance mechanisms, effectively our own codes um, in all but name, uh, in order to be able to already trade in soil carbon. We're doing this. It's not broken. Uh, we don't want to see a government-funded 
code come in that, that effectively mm. then puts all of us out of business uh, in terms of our own code, forces us to now do something in the in one way when we actually think we've got uh, we've got something quite good here already. Uh, but uh, okay, so if that isn't uh, the answer, then let's pivot. And what we've done in this project is to pivot to this idea of minimum standards so that each of those existing codes uh, can be objectively checked. Uh, are, are you doing good stuff or not? And if not, you're going to get the guidance to know what you have to do to improve the integrity of what you're doing. Parallel with this, uh, we are uh, creating a roadmap to, and hopefully we'll get a, a good way through uh, developing uh, an open access or community code, which will be developed alongside the minimum standards to make sure it complies with those minimum standards. Uh, and the vision at the moment is that that would be operated by a, a commercial player, but on a not-for-profit basis. So it would be financially right. sustainable, but not-for-profit and open to anyone who wants to use that, giving access to new market entrants to that soil carbon market. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I was talking to Snow Change in Finland recently, um, and uh, they have some peat and restoration projects um, that they've attracted private finance to. And I asked them about whether they considered selling carbon credits. And they said, absolutely not at the moment, because they'd identified over 50 types of peat in Finland. And so it would require that many different codes. And Can I just talk to that point about evidence, though? Yeah. I think it's really important that we only go as fast as the evidence tells us. So for, for the peatland codes, um, we started this off um, looking at, uh, at, at blanket bogs. There are a number of types of bog, especially in the lowlands, that did not count. Um, and that was simply because we did not have enough data to be able to show across the UK in a range of different people in contexts what actually happens in those different contexts. Uh, and we could do that mm. for one type of bog, but not for the other main type. Uh, there's since been work done. So we launched out in 2015. Um, and uh, in hopefully the September, version two of the Peatland Code uh, will include expand standard peatland types, but also hopefully uh, different contexts as well. So agricultural peats uh, in lowlands, um, uh, things like polluticulture, but you can only do that as fast as the research. Uh, in this case, uh, yeah, we're looking at, it's been a long journey to actually be able to move from version one to version two, where we're happy that there is a sufficient evidence base. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because I sort of feel like we all feel the pressure to move fast and we don't want to you know this phrase that we all say now not let the not let perfect be the enemy of of good but we can only go as fast as uh, the science says otherwise there won't be any confidence in these markets as you pointed out So moving on, you mentioned there the Financing Nature Recovery Coalition UK report recently came out in June, and it set out these recommendations for those who don't know for government chiefly on how to support the development of high integrity environmental markets. Standards and codes were mentioned in there. There were many other points raised. Um, you've pointed out that there's this potential for negative consequences of markets if we don't have the right frameworks in place, um, uh, as mentioned in your recent land acquisition for carbon report as well, which I'm sure we'll go into in more detail. But just as a start of 10 on this topic, um, high integrity, do you think we've collectively landed on what that means? 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, each of us probably think that we are on the same page, but who knows? It's only when you really start talking about this. Um, so I was kind of listening in on some of the consultation uh, that Scottish government were doing recently around their principles for high integrity um, uh, investment in these kinds of markets. Uh, and yeah, clearly there is differ- differing opinion about some of those uh, those principles. So and of course, that brings us to the thorny issue of the fact that uh, these are devolved issues um, when it comes to government. Uh, and yet, these markets operate at a national scale. Uh, and of course, there is then the, the question of whether or not we allow international investment in these markets. Uh, the UK's uh, current uh, domestic voluntary carbon markets um, on peatland and woodland don't allow this, um, but there's nothing to stop us potentially allowing this for uh, other markets. Um, um, and we would need to legislate to prevent that if we wanted to. Uh, this is currently just strategic decision that we've taken uh, in terms of uh, how the current markets are, are decided. So there are a whole load of, of really high-level questions up there uh, for debate. I think what was great about uh, the financing nature recovery uh, process was that it's very clearly co-produced its recommendations with all four UK countries. Uh, I was facilitating conversations just this last week between my Scottish and English colleagues um, to try and get these things uh, a bit more joined up. But uh, there is no stipulation, no reason why necessarily we should all do the same thing and do something uh, UK nationally. Well, absolutely. As different social issues are emerging in each country. So talk us through some of the issues as you see them, um, particularly in Scotland. One of the questions that, that I was being asked um, by people from all angles, from, from investors and government and, and, and others alike, was what's going on with this whole land market thing? And to what extent are natural capital markets actually inflating this and causing negative unintended consequences? And the mm. focus has been primarily on woodland. And some some really quite scary statistics. So Scotland is where the action is happening. Um, and uh, in Scotland overall, um, uh, in 2021, uh, a 30% increase in land values. Um, wow. uh, if you then look at uh, extensive livestock, uh, we're looking at 60% increase in land values. Uh, plantable um, uh, country, mainly in the uplands again, 54% increase in land values. Um, actual commercial forestry, uh, on average in 2021, um, selling for 50% above uh, the, the valuation. Uh, it is kind of going crazy. Um, yeah. And this is in part... Uh, it's about uh, that background trend uh, in uh, in land values and a whole load of factors that are just in- inflating land values across the, the board. In part, and in large part, I'm going to argue, uh, this is actually about timber prices and a whole load of factors that uh, are driving uh, those those commodity prices. Uh, but then there is also the, the, the role of natural capital markets. Uh, but then in Scotland, where this is really uh, a live issue, this is against the, the background of a land reform agenda, which is about taking yeah. land from large landowners and giving it to communities. And what we're potentially seeing is a reconcentration in the hands of uh, investor owners uh, instead. Uh, there's a, a rewilding project in my own uh, community at the moment um, uh, and lots of local people saying, yeah, uh, did we want to see our farmland planted out with trees? I'm not sure. Did anyone really ask us? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, not to mention issues around food security or food sovereignty, probably more accurately in our country. Um, so yeah, there can be huge negative unintended consequences. And that is why as government, we need to be looking at this horizon scanning on a regular basis. And we've got uh, 16 recommendations in the, the report that we co-produced with all four governments on this particular issue. Um, it's uh, published by Sefari, S-E-F-A-R-I, if you want to uh, Google that. 
That's fantastic. Could you sort of sort of share with us the recommendations close to your heart? I'm sure they're all close to your heart, but maybe I don't want to say the most important because that would be unfair, but um, ones that may be, may be relevant to an international audience as well. Yeah. Um, some countries have a, a very clear regulations around who is and who is not allowed to buy land. Uh, you may well want to, to look at acquisitions over a certain area. Uh, so for large scale acquisitions, um, uh, do we need a public interest to I've mentioned uh, community natural capital funds. Um, uh, a lot of people say, well, you know what, uh, th these investments are marginal anyway. Uh, we can't afford um, to, to make uh, money for things like this. Uh, I would argue you can't afford not to bring local communities along with you. This is not just a normative argument, but we need the support of local communities um, rather than just creating ill feeling and having people uh, ultimately undermining uh, what you're trying to do. Um, there's a whole load of things that you can think of in terms of, of fiscal instruments. Um, but, yeah. but I think that the key thing for me is that uh, we try and take a, a, a landscape scale approach to this and we think about how we can actually engage everyone involved in a landscape to think about what this, what society wants from our land. Um, and so that, uh, and that we put processes in place, whether regulatory, legislative type things, um, uh, or things like uh, rural land use partnerships, where we resource people to pull together, what do we as a society, as a community, wants from this landscape. But that, for me, is the thing that is, I think, most close to my heart uh, in terms of making sure that we get uh, these integrative outcomes, not just one uh, ecosystem service, say carbon, at the expense of everything else. So this landscape scale approach, and today we talk a lot about place-based investing. Mm. Um, as you just laid out there, where we all kind of have a say in, in what happens on the land, feels like very um, idyllic, doesn't it? And I do wonder, I would love to see the same, but what are the building blocks that actually result in that happening? Because when I think about not all these projects, some, as you point out, if you're selling the commodities and you've got carbon and you've got land price increase are very, very profitable. But some of these ecosystems markets at the moment um, that are being developed are very low margin. And the thought of then adding in a whole bunch of time and commitment to having to engage in communities that could take a really long time to get consensus would probably just collapse the evolution of, of some smaller markets. So I just wonder, what do you what do you think about this? Um, what's the roadmap to it, as you see? And obviously not expecting you should do this on the spot now. It's probably a, a huge piece of work. But just what do you no, think are some of the key building blocks? No, it's absolutely happening. Um, I uh, was principal investigator on a £1.5 million project funded by the UK Research Councils that was looking at uh, a model called landscape enterprise networks um, and studying, do these actually works. So this is a place-based um, investment model that integrates investment for multiple different uh, different outcomes from a landscape. Uh, and the resounding answer is yes, and crucially, local communities, farmers actually like this uh, this approach. Mm. Uh, and so what's interesting about this uh, for, for me is that it's not just about ecosystem service outcomes. Uh, this is also about reducing risk, reducing corporate risk. In the same way that a corporation might identify uh, risk to their IT uh, services from, uh, from cyber attacks, 
it's very hard to actually pin down how big this risk is in monetary terms, but this is potentially an existential risk. We could get closed down by a bad enough cyber attack, and therefore we invest millions of pounds in cybersecurity. And climate change is on many companies' risk registers now, um, risks to infrastructure, risks to supply chains for many companies, especially, say, food and drink sector, existential risks. How do you put a number on that? Uh, not not easy, but this is significant. And so in boardrooms now, uh, people responsible for managing those risks, looking at the landscapes from which they procure outcomes and saying, uh, if nothing else, to reduce those risks, we need to be investing in this. Uh, but layered on top of that is now this recognition that, huh, and we could get some carbon credits for this, and that might actually form an asset that could form part of the business case uh, for investing in uh, in that. Um, uh, and, uh, and might we then be able to pool our investment with other people who are interested in different outcomes from this landscape? So uh, in one of the trades that we studied, we were looking um, at Nestle, who were investing in a whole load of on-farm interventions to uh, increase the resilience of their milk, milk supply to their Dalston factory in the north of England uh, to the threats of climate change, uh, but then co-trading with United Utilities, who also wanted to see uh, water quality improvements from those uh, from those same interventions. And at the same time, looking upstream to peatland projects and woodland projects that might then give you some carbon credits for, for that stuff. The end result is uh, that we're actually putting all of this stuff together into a joint proposition, and we spread that risk across. So uh, there's this principle of pooled investment. And so I've been working with Scottish government to look at how this and a whole range of other natural capital approaches um, uh, that work at that place-based approach can kind of scale, how that might be implemented uh, through their rural land use partnerships. They've got five pilots and the programme for government uh, suggests it's likely that uh, they'll roll that out more broadly. And is there a way of scaling these models? Um, because otherwise I sort of fear that they're just sort of one-off regional models and maybe there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, so there's a, a private scaling mechanism and a public scaling mechanism here. Um, uh, and uh, the model in Scotland, um, if natural capital um, uh, funding were to be part of the uh, rural land use partnerships model, would be that government would pay for facilitators and those facilitators would do lots of things. But one of those could be uh, that job of getting uh, investors uh, and suppliers aggregated to deliver landscape scale solutions um, that do all the things that, that, that we're talking about. So two different models for doing this but it does require that investment. And so some people say, well, do we really need that investment? Um, you know, all we need to do is just to let the market um, have its way. Um, and, uh, and I would argue that we do need that. Uh, yes, it might slow things down, but I believe this is fully scalable, whether through public funding or private funding or a combination of both. Um, but I would far rather we do this slightly slower in a way that um, is more responsible than, um, than just saying the market will take care of this and then fixing problems as they arise, as we're currently right. doing now uh, in the situation with, uh, with forestry. Also, an incredible skill set required to manage all of those different stakeholders and bring together uh, and, and create an investment model that works for everyone that, you know, I would say requires its own industry. Yeah, this, uh, for me, the, the, some of the best and most impactful research is this kind of suck it and see, yeah, let's try some stuff out. And so right at the beginning of the journey with this, uh, the people in code stuff, uh, people said, right, you need to employ a bunch of uh, economists. Uh, we need to do uh, willingness, to, willingness to pay surveys to work out if there is in fact a market for this. And I was like, yeah, we could do that. Um, uh, I'm 
not a particular fan of neoclassical economic techniques anyway. So a few doubts, but yeah, we could do that. But in reality, we could just create a market and see how much people are willing to actually play, pay in a real marketplace um, uh, and, uh, and solve the problems as they arise, uh, collect the evidence as the evidence gaps arise and make this thing happen in practice and study it and learn from our mistakes. Uh, and for me, then, uh, yeah, you can still do rigorous, robust research um, in this environmental governance space, which is what I specialize in. And at the same time, you get those impacts. And that is research that, that matters. Well, let's just wrap up then on that final point, because as you say, I know it's really close to your heart. Is this area of where research can be the most impactful. Tell us just finally a bit about some of the work you're doing specifically with the research community on how to be more impactful. Yeah. Um, so in uh, in my spare time, I, uh, I'm chief executive <laughs> of um, the uh, the world's largest impact training company. So we train researchers around the world from universities how they can use their research and evidence to make a difference. The, the key thing here is that uh, there are all these really clever people out there with uh, with great ideas. Um, but they're not having an impact because they're not connected to these agendas. Um, and so uh, this is one of my favorite podcasts. So I, I have to admit, I was somewhat starstruck when you asked me to come onto the, <laughs> onto the podcast. Um, and I was just talking last week, because um, I regularly recommend this to people. And I was recommending it to some Scottish government colleagues because I was saying, look, the reality is uh, academia is not on the cutting edge. Uh, if you want to see what is going on uh, on the cutting edge uh, of ecosystem markets, you need to go to practice. And this podcast is one of the places where where I have learned most about what is actually happening on the cutting edge. Um, so thank you, Helen, for, for curating such, uh, such wonderful guests um, uh, on, the, on the show. Uh, but that's the problem for academia. We are behind the curve, and yet there are all these people with these skills and passion that could be making a difference if they were just connected a bit better to these issues. And so for me, the starting place I suggest to anyone, any academic, if you want to make a difference, is to do what's known as a stakeholder analysis. Who out there in the real world might be interested in your research? Mm. Go and talk to them. Find out actually what their interests are, what their needs are. Build a relationship with them, and they will tell you what would actually make a difference. Work with them, and now you can actually make a difference. And, and that is essentially what I've been doing in this space. That's brilliant. I also... Um... And I was looking at some of the training modules yesterday and thinking, oh, I would quite like to do quite a few of these myself. Uh, and I'll provide all the, the links um, on the GFI Hive site where we post the, the podcast. And I also think it's something that I've seen the NGO sector go through as well um, in the last few years, where they used to do a lot of kind of reports on this is what the finance sector should do without ever engaging with those who are on the ground practically implementing um, whatever these recommendations are. And that seems to have shifted. So it's interesting hearing you say that um, that shift could still come for academia. Well, yeah. it's such a pleasure to have you on. And um, we are so lucky to have you generally. I'm so thrilled that you're here doing all this amazing work in the UK and internationally. But I, I know that I feel very grateful that we get to we get to have you here in this time zone. Um, thanks so much, Mark, again, and uh, really look forward to having you on uh, in the future to discuss so much more we could have discussed today, but uh, we'll save it for another time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Helen.
Well, that's it from us here at Financing Nature today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mark as much as I did. We are back next week with Urs Dietrich from South Pole to go deep into a deal. We're going to be talking about the Landscape Resilience Fund and some of the projects that it is investing in. So also in the next few weeks, we have Margaret Kulau of WWF and Emily McKenzie from the TNFD. On the TNFD, you'll have seen the latest beta framework release, hopefully. Um, And if you are in the UK and interested in learning more about the TNFD, we are hosting the National Consultation Group launch event that's going to provide an introduction to the TNFD and some of the work happening in the UK. It's online and it's on July the 14th and you can find the registration details on the GFI Hive registration page. While you are there, you can of course sign up for the monthly newsletter, uh, which will bring you the latest case study. I've got 24 up now, I believe, as well as resources from around the industry and latest news. But in the meantime, just a really big thank you to you for listening and to our funders, the Esme Fairbend Foundation and our wonderful editor, Robin Lee Byrne of Fairly Media. See you next week. 